And we're back for third season. That's right. I decided to renew the season. So yay. <laughs> I'm quite excited for what this season has in store. So first and foremost, welcome back. Thank you for rocking with me. If you're new here, welcome to Filling the Void with Josie. I'm your host, Josie, and I'm happy to have you in my corner of the world for a little while. Whether you're a new listener or you tune in weekly, thank you, by the way, please help support the growth of this podcast by taking some time right now to rate and leave a review wherever you're listening from. Literally right now, wherever you're getting your podcast from, wherever you're tuning in from, take this time, even while I'm speaking, uh, rate it, leave a review. Ideally, you know, we want positivity, positivity only. <laughs> um, and if you've got anything in terms of constructive feedback, slide into my DMs, you know, let's, let's, let's take care of those matters in private. <laughs> but do me one solid and share this podcast with one other person who you think would gain value from listening, because I may be biased, rightfully so, you won't want to miss out on this season. This is a podcast where my guests and myself share our unique experiences around education, from what university was like to why my guests decided to opt out of formal higher education and choose a different path, as well as sharing tips and tricks for navigating life post-grad, or as I like to say, fill the void that many, if not all of us, experience once we finish university. If this sounds like something you're interested in, stick around. The stories are juicy and the insight is sweet. <laughs> Above all, I want to remind all my listeners that whatever you're experiencing, someone else has gone through a similar ordeal, if not the exact same thing. Why not lean on each other and tap into our collective resources and understanding to make sure this life journey thing is a bit more enjoyable? You get? So, for all my returning listeners, you may know the drill by now, and I won't keep you waiting much longer because each season so far has had a theme, and this season is no different. Throughout season three, we will be exploring the concept of fear. Wait, 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 don't leave or press pause and then never come back. Hear me out, hear me out. Fear is such a major part of our lives, right? Like, I can't be the only one, <laughs> please. Let me know I'm not the only one who feels as if fear dictates her life. <laughs> I noticed, albeit a tad too late, that fear had infiltrated my days while I was in uni. It hid behind insecurities, indecisiveness, and sometimes even lack of confidence in myself or my work. Now, looking on the outside in, you might not have come to those conclusions if you just kind of knew me on a surface level or even sometimes if you knew me a little bit more than that, because, you know, we always want to hide our insecurities. We want to hide the, the lack of confidence. Yeah, I mean, it, it seeps out, but we do our best to try to cover that, right? So we'll get into those details, my personal experience, a bit more throughout the season. And lo and behold, it has yet to disappear, even though I've graduated twice. But as I mentioned earlier, you're rarely the only one going through something. So I decided to look fear in the face for season three. And I've invited some other courageous people onto the podcast to do the same. It doesn't stop there, though. I'm inviting each one of you as well. 
courageously look fear, whatever that fear may mean for you today, look it in the face and do the hard thing anyway. We're still living through uncertain times. Like it's about to be, it's about to be a third year anniversary of this whole panorama, global pandemic, Omarion, Omicron, Delta, you name it. You name it. <laughs> people are tired and over it. I am people. People is me. And I'm sure you are too. From students to teachers, parents to healthcare workers, and everyone in between. Anxiety is the norm or has become the norm, whether you're worried about catching COVID. And if you're one of the few who did not catch COVID or catch Marion, listen, <laughs> you, you deserve, I don't know, some sort of reward, or maybe the reward is not, not getting sick. <laughs> but whether you're worried about catching COVID or finding a job or being able to travel again, or whatever's on your mind, anxiety has just It's in the air 24-7, constantly, right? All of this makes me think of an essay that the late author Toni Morrison wrote right before the 2016 elections in the United States. It's entitled, No Place for Self-Pity, No Room for Fear. At first, it seems like this scathing rebuke, but upon further reflection, I see the compassionate response within her words. I'd like to share that essay with you as I begin this season's exploration of fear and our relationship to it. She says, Christmas, the day after, in 2004, following the presidential re-election of George W. Bush, I'm staring out the window in an extremely dark mood, feeling helpless. Then a friend, a fellow artist, calls to wish me happy holidays. He asks, how are you? And instead of, Oh, fine. And you? I blurt out the truth. Not well. Not only am I depressed, I can't seem to work, to write. It's as though I'm paralyzed, unable to write anything more in the novel I've begun. I've never felt this way before, but the election. I'm about to explain with further detail when he interrupts shouting, no, 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 no. This is precisely the time when artists go to work. Not when everything is fine, but in times of dread. That's our job. I felt foolish for the rest of the morning, especially when I recalled the artists who had done their work in gulags, prison cells, hospital beds, who did their work while hounded, exiled, reviled, pillaried, and those who were executed. The list, which covers centuries, not just the last one, is long. A short sample will include Paul Robeson, Primo Levi, Ai Weiwei, Oscar Wilde, Pablo Picasso, Dashiell Hemet, Wole Soyinka, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Alexander Sol, I can't pronounce that last name, Lillian Hellman, Salman Rushdie, Herda Mueller, Walter Benjamin, an exhaustive list would run into the hundreds. Dictators and tyrants routinely begin their reigns and sustain their power with the deliberate and calculated destruction of art the censorship and book burning of unpoliced prose, the harassment and detention of painters, journalists, poets, playwrights, novelists, essayists. This is the first step of a despot whose instinctive acts of malevolence are not simply mindless or evil, they are also perceptive. Such despots know very well that their strategy of repression will allow the real tools of oppressive power to flourish, 
Their plan is simple. One, select a useful enemy, an quote-unquote other, to convert rage into conflict, even war. Two, limit or erase the imagination that art provides, as well as the critical thinking of scholars and journalists. And three, distract with toys, dreams of loot, and themes of superior religion or defiant national pride that enshrine past hurts and humiliations. The nation could have never existed. The nation is where this was. This is Josie speaking now. The nation is where this was published. Back to her article. The nation could never have existed or flourished in 1940s Spain or 2014 Syria or apartheid South Africa or 1930s Germany. And the reason is clear. It was born in the United States in 1865, the year of Lincoln's assassination, when political division was stark and lethal during, as my friend said, times of dread. But no prince or king or dictator could interfere successfully or forever in a country that seriously prized freedom of the press. This is not to say there weren't elements that tried censure, but they could not, over the long haul, win. The nation, with its history of disruptive, probing, intelligent essays, sharing wide space equally with art, criticism, reviews, poetry, and drama, is as crucial now as it has been for 150 years. In this contemporary world of violent protests, internecine war, cries for food and peace, in which whole desert cities are thrown up to shelter the dispossessed, abandoned, terrified populations running for their lives and the breath of their children. What are we, the so-called civilized, to do? The solutions gravitate toward military intervention and or internment, killing or jailing. Any gesture other than those two in this debased political climate is understood to be a sign of weakness. One wonders why the label weak has become the ultimate and unforgivable sin. Is it because we have become a nation so frightened of others, itself and its citizens, that it does not recognize true weakness, the cowardice in the insistence on guns everywhere, war anywhere? How adult, how manly is it to shoot abortion doctors, school children, pedestrians, fleeing black teenagers? How strong, how powerful is the feeling of having a murderous weapon in the pocket, on the hip, in the glove compartment of your car? How leaderly is it to threaten war in foreign affairs simply out of habit, manufactured fear or national ego? And how pitiful. Pitiful because we must know at some level of consciousness that the source of and reason for our instilled aggression is not only fear, it's also money. The profit motive of the weapons of the weapons industry, the financial support of the military industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about. Forcing a nation to use force is easy when the citizenry is rife with discontent, experiencing feelings of powerlessness that can be easily soothed by violence. And when the political discourse is shredded by an unreason and a hatred so deep that vulgar abuse seems normal, dissatisfaction rules. Our debates, for the most part, are examples unworthy of the playground. Name-calling, verbal slaps, gossip giggles, all while the swings and slides of governance remain empty. For most of the last five centuries, Africa has been understood to be poor, desperately poor, 
in spite of the fact that it is outrageously rich in oil, gold, diamonds, precious metals, etc. But since those reaches do not, in large part, belong to the people who have lived there all their lives, it has remained in the mind of the West worthy of disdain, sorrow, and of course, pillage. We sometimes forget that colonialism was and is war, a war to control and own another country's resources, meaning money. We may also delude ourselves into thinking that our efforts to civilize or pacify other countries are not about money. Slavery was always about money, free labor producing money for owners and industries. The contemporary working poor, quote unquote, and jobless poor, quote unquote, are like the dormant riches of darkest colonial Africa, quote unquote, available for wedge theft and property theft and owned by metastasizing corporations, stifling dissident voices. None of this bodes well for the future. Still, I remember the shout of my friend that day after Christmas. No, this is precisely the time when artists go to work. There's no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. I know the world is bruised and bleeding, and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it's also critical to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom, like art. What Ms. Morrison shares in her article, yes, there is a very big political aspect to it, but my takeaway there was whether you are an artist, creative, or whatever the case may be in terms of your profession or how you identify yourself as a person, it's like, despite the times that we see all around us, don't succumb to the fear. You may not know what will happen at the end of this quarter or the end of the semester or even the end of this year, but don't let the fear of the unknown keep you from one, what today is showing and teaching you, and two, hope for a brighter tomorrow. To help us do that, I'll be going through a great book I read recently exactly on this topic by Lavi Ajayi, who's an author that if you don't know yet, you should definitely look her up. We'll be reading her book, or I'll be talking about her book more so, going through a book, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear-Fighting Manual, because sometimes you need a coach to get you through certain challenges. So throughout the season, I'll actually be posting twice a week, my typical Wednesdays, as well as on Sundays. Wednesdays will be episodes with my beloved guests, and Sundays will be hosts, will be solo episodes with yours truly. I hope you'll tune in. And that brings us to the end of this season's intro. Wow, 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 wow. Before you move on with your day or night, if you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to this season, please help support this podcast by rating it and leaving a review wherever you're listening to it right now. Wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're listening to it, please take a few seconds, take a couple of minutes and support this podcast. Leave a rating. We're doing, we're doing four and above here. Three and above, sure. It's pushing it for sure. <laughs> for those who love extra credit, go ahead on Instagram and follow the podcast at Filling the Void Pod. I'll be covering what's going on in my day to day here in my new city. For those who haven't heard, I've actually moved to Toronto 
and I am, I guess, living my best life, as they say, um, exploring my um, navigating life post-grad, really. So I'll be posting on Instagram as well. So you'll have that to look forward to. Um, just talking about what it's like being a Black journalist here in the city as I try to develop that and see where life takes me. I'm looking forward to growing together, growing in courage, in confidence, and in calmness. Three things that fear really tries to squash. So please tell a friend to tell a friend. We're filling the void, Josie. Have a good one. Thank you.